I think we all have the potential to be creative because creativity is really a tool. It's just a human tool that we use to get places that we want to go. Welcome to Teach Me Something New. I'm your host, Britt Morin, and this is a production of iHeartRadio and Britt Co. All my life, everyone's told me I should focus on being good at one thing. But the truth is, I'm curious about a lot of things. But how do you learn about everything? The answer? Make the world's best experts teach you in less than an hour. So come along with me as we all learn something new. Tapping into your creative side can be exhausting. We never know if our ideas are original enough, cool enough, or good enough. But how can we break through these mental barriers and just start creating? Luckily, we've got the creativity expert with us on the show today. His name is Austin Cleon. Austin is a New York Times bestselling author of a trilogy of illustrated books about creativity in the digital age. Steal like an artist, show your work, and keep going. He's also the author of Newspaper Blackout, a collection of poems made by redacting the newspaper with a permanent marker. I have some of these. His books have been translated into dozens of languages and have sold over a million copies worldwide. And he's been featured on NPR's Morning Edition, PBS NewsHour, and in the New York Times and Wall Street Journal. Keep listening as we dive into all things creativity with Austin today and talk about how to stay inspired, how art fits into the digital world, and how to get the most out of our own creativity. Hello, Austin. So excited to have you on the show today. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, and I think you already know this, but my five-year-old's name is Austin. So we already share that in common. I feel like this is going to be a really good conversation. Solid name. (laughs) Solid name. (laughs) I decided, I told my husband when we were having him that I don't know any Austins that are like bad people. Like Austins are just like good salt of the earth people. And so (laughs) we could probably find some, but let's not. (laughs) You're like, you actually don't know me that well yet, Brandon. No, I think uh, it's weird because people ask me if I'm from Texas. And I said, no, I'm from Ohio. Austin was actually a family name before Texas was a state. (laughs) Amazing. So uh, no, it's an old name. It goes back. I think it's a shortening of Augustine. I think that's actually where the name comes from. But now you are from Austin, Texas. Now I live in Austin and it's very confusing. So speaking of growing up in Ohio, like talk to us about when you were little. You are now this master of like creativity. You've written all these creative books. Was that who you were as a young boy? You know, I will turn that question around. I would say I still am that young boy. And I think that my books... Rather than me being the master, (laughs) I think of myself very much as the student. My books are very much the result of me attempting to try to figure out how art and creativity works. So the books are really the byproduct of the process of me trying to discover this stuff for my own art. I've always loved to draw. I've always loved to read. I've always loved to write. I'm sort of one of those people that just didn't stop. I think a lot of us are like that. When we're younger, we just get distracted or we think we're not good enough or someone tells us we're not artists or, you know, oh, you're this or you're that. And we go down a different path. But my experience with young children is most of them are intensely creative and they're sort of tapped into what many adults wish we could have, particularly those of us in creative fields. 
So yeah, I mean, I'm very much who I was, just a kid from a small town trying to figure out how do you make art? How do you create things? How do you make a living? What does an artist do? What do they wear? What do they eat? Where do they go? You know, I've always been interested in these questions. And I think a lot of it came from because I grew up in a very rural area and I wasn't surrounded by a lot of artists or writers. The creativity I experienced when I was a child, I now can honor and give it its place. It was more a creativity of like crafting and cooking. And, you know, I helped my dad build a barn. That's cool. <laughs> my mom was always sewing and cooking. And so a lot of my early life was spent witnessing creativity in forms that more highfalutin artist types might not acknowledge or honor. And so I think a lot of that sort of weaves into my work. And I think that's why my books have that kind of anyone can do it type feel to them. Why they're encouraging, I guess. I have to say that it's so important to me to let everyone listening know that they are creative people because it's effectively the mission of my company, Britain Co. It's actually why I started my company, Britain Co. Maybe a lot of people don't know this, but I was working in tech. I was working at Apple and Google and doing all this sort of great work, but it wasn't super creative artistically, you know? And I was probably not somebody who would identify as a creative. I would say I had like sparks of creativity, but then I was getting married and I had quit my job at Google. I was determined to launch a company. I didn't know what it was going to be yet. And I like dove in headfirst to all these creative projects to get ready for my wedding and really customize it. And I pretty sure I went way overboard. But (laughs) all the women at my wedding were like, whoa, how did you do all this stuff? Like, I didn't think you could make all this. And like, I didn't know you were this creative. I'm not creative. I'm definitely not creative. And I was like, why aren't you creative? Like, I didn't know how to do this six months ago. And I just kind of figured it out. And so that became the mission of Britain Co. was to convince specifically women that they were creative people and that we all make creative decisions all day, every day. And in fact, we did this study about kids versus adults where we got a bunch of like five to seven-year-old girls to come into a room and we just had like paintbrushes and things like laying out for them. And some of them told stories and some of them started painting and some of them, you know, just like went to town. They didn't even flinch. Then we brought in like 25 to 30-year-old women into the same room (laughs) and we recorded all of this on video and they froze. Like no one knew what to do. And we captured all this on video and you can search for it on YouTube. It's called hashtag I am creative about like what happened? Like where did we all go awry? And I think it's probably like middle school or when we start getting graded on creative work or we start getting like made fun of by other people. And, you know, we really care about what people think about us. But my question for you is where do you think it goes awry? Because this is just my hypothesis, but I don't actually have any data. That is a great question. I'm really inspired by this through a cartoonist that I love. Her name's Linda Berry. And she does a lot of work with four-year-olds. She'll get a four-year-old and a PhD student together, and they will discuss the PhD student's research and draw together. And in the course of doing this work, like they'll figure out problems, <laughs> basically. So she spends a lot of time with four or five-year-olds. That seems to be the kind of magical age where you're really uninhibited. You know, it's funny, my son's 
eight going on nine, and you can really start to see the kind of self-awareness come in and you can see that kind of coming down the pipe. He's still extremely creative, but there's a kind of editor mind that has come in. You know, I used to think it was a tragedy that this happens. I think in some ways it's just our own personal evolution. I think it's just part of like human development to become self-aware, to be able to like think logically. So there's that part of it, the in brain development. You are becoming more self-aware and you're more critical and your ability to think critically and logically reason. That stuff all comes into play for the child right around the same time that they start, you know, maybe losing some of this really raw creative stuff. I think what's really bad culturally is just that really what you're talking about is when people start going to school, everything gets split up into subjects and knowledge sort of gets chopped up. So there's English class and there's art class and there's science class. And then we ask kids at a very young age to sort themselves into these funnels. I remember talking to a second grade teacher and she asked me, is my son more of a STEM guy or an artsy guy? <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> he's seven. <laughs> right. Know? But that happens really early. So for me, I think culturally, I have a personal hatred of the word creative as a noun because when I was working in advertising, which is where that word really comes from, that's really the first use of the word creative as a noun or like a job title. I always felt like creative needed to think more like accounts and accounts needed to think more like creative. I thought just simply by giving people these nouns, I thought the whole agency was sort of split down the middle. It was almost like left brain, right brain or something. And I have always sort of pushed against that word because I think by calling people creatives, of course, the duality is that everyone else must be a non-creative. <laughs> right. And so I think it just like makes this dichotomy and you have to immediately say, oh, I'm a creative or I'm not a creative or whatever. And so I think that can be really damaging because I think, you know, really, we're at this point now where when people tell you they're a creative, you sort of look at them like, well, what the hell does that even mean? Because Creativity is really a tool. It's just a human tool that we use to get places that we want to go. I've always wanted to make art or I've wanted to write books or I've wanted to do this or that. And creativity has just been the way to get there. And I think that if we put creativity back in its place as a tool that humans can use for their own personal thriving, for their communities thriving, for the world's thriving, then we can get it back to a healthy place where everyone can have it in their lives and they can use it in their lives and their work. Right. And I think it sort of is like a muscle, right? Like just the more you use, the more you have. Isn't that like a Pablo Picasso quote? It's like yeah. creativity. But it's like if you practice new things and you just keep practicing, you'll get better at them. And this was true for me in that wedding story. Like I didn't know how to use a laser cutter or how to create a floral bouquet, but I learned on the internet. I practiced a few times. It wasn't like the best floral bouquet of all time, but it was good enough. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was surprised by how good it was and how I actually learned pretty quickly. And I think we all have this muscle. And, you know, if I were to do that for many months on end and just make like a variety of floral bouquets every day, I'm sure by a year in or two years in, I would be pretty good at it. Right. 
I think we all have the potential to be creative. And I think it's a tool that we can all use. And we all have access to as humans. Are some of us more inclined towards it? Yes, I do think so. The same way that some of us are inclined to be able to jump six feet into the air and dunk a basketball or you know whatever it is. But I think what you said, it's a muscle. That idea, I think, is enormously helpful to think of it that way as it is something that you do and it is a verb. And that the more that you do it, the better you get at it. And it is true. It is a sort of use it or lose it type thing. To get people to think about creativity in terms of you put in little bits and pieces of effort every day, and those little bits and pieces of effort, they turn into something big over time. To think of it as like doing your push-ups for the day. I think that's incredibly helpful towards getting people started on the road towards having creativity back in their life. And I do like thinking of it that way as it's like, a more enjoyable form of push-ups. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I would much rather do something creative than push-ups any day. Yes. Yes. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's fast forward to where I feel like you really got on this like large map (laughs) with your book, Steal Like an Artist, which came out Mm -hmm. in 2012. And it all started from a talk you gave, right? You said that you wrote a talk based on a list of 10 things you wished you had heard when you were starting out. Number one was Steal Like an Artist. Number two, don't wait until you know who you are to get started. Number three, write the book you want to read. Number four, use your hands. Number five, side projects and hobbies are important. Number six, the secret, do good work and share it with people. Number seven, geography is no longer our master. Number eight, be nice. The world is a small town. Number nine, be boring. It's the only way to get work done. And number 10, creativity is subtraction. Okay, we don't have time to dive into all of these, (laughs) but which of these are your favorite pieces of advice or which of these have really garnered the biggest reaction from people? And can you explain what they mean? Well, those are two different questions. The one that's my favorite and the one that has resonated the most with other people. I mean, I think the first thing that you learn as a creative person or an artist is that the things that you love are not necessarily the things that everyone else will love. And if you're lucky, there's a Venn diagram between what you love and what loves you back (laughs) in creative work. I think of the book as a big permission slip. I don't think of myself as a teacher, but I feel like a lot of people, what they're looking for is permission to make art or to do the kind of creative work they'd really like to do. And I think that Steal Like an Artist, that it's very basic, is a permission slip to sort of join the world that you want to join and to do the work that you want to really see done. And I think number two don't wait until you know who you are to get started is the one that says, hey, you have to jump in. The art sort of runs on not knowing as much as it does knowing. 
that it's really in the process of doing your work that you discover who it is that you are and not the other way around. You don't figure out who you are and then you do the work. It's like in the process of doing the work, you discover who you are and who you are is constantly changing through the work. But I think that the bottom line of the book is there in the title is that we don't come here with a voice or knowing necessarily what we're doing. We discover our voice or we discover who we are through the work of other people. But it's really by copying and exploring and studying and mashing things together that we really find out what it is that we have to offer. It's actually through the gifts of others that we discover our own gift. I mean, when you put out a book, you have done your part, (laughs) you know, and then it's really the readers that give it this whole other life or any life to speak of. It's not really your book anymore. I mean, I think a lot of musicians discover this. They'll have like a hit single or something. And that song really belongs to everyone else now. (laughs) But that's what happens with art and creative work is that, you know, we do our part as makers. And then it's the people experiencing the work that bring the other half to it. But I do think the book says, hey, you can do this too. And I think that's really its appeal. And it's done in a style that's very simple and punky and fast and it's short and tight and I always wanted the book to read like one of my favorite punk albums. Like I always wanted it to feel like a Ramones album or a Wire album. You know, I wanted it to be very fast and furious and for people to just feel like making something after they read it was really the point. Well, I think it's pretty important to call out some of the greatest things that have been made in history that were actually copies and then made better. I mean, yeah. not only in the creative world, but in the business world too. I mean, look at, you know, Microsoft launched, then Apple launched, and then like Uber launched, then Lyft launched. And it was like, you know, how many beverage companies have launched that were just like the same and then a little bit better than the last sparkling water that existed? And so like... What examples would you give to our listeners about some of the best copying that's ever been done? I've been thinking a lot about it lately. I mean, some of the best copying was literal copying is the medieval monks who actually copied some of the old Greek and Roman epics or Greek and Roman writing that they kept alive during the Dark Ages. Wow. (laughs) Then discovered during the Renaissance. I mean, it's kind of interesting if you think about history. Our modern civilization is based on rediscovering work that had been copied by other people. I think now that's why we're in this era where I think all the time, I think less about making new things. And I think in my own work about keeping things alive that I want to see continue in the world. So a lot of my work is less about me trying to come up with something new as much as I'm trying to kind of resurrect things that I think have been lost from the current culture and kind of bring them back. So if you talk about like Lyft and Uber or something, that's people copying from what's going on in contemporary life. What I find really fascinating now is people going back into the past and copying ways of being in the past updating them into our current context. So how everyone's gotten back into gardening Mm -hmm. or riding bicycles or 
digging up some indigenous knowledge about, you know, soil conservation or that kind of thing. That's the copying I think is really, really interesting. I think one of the things that I've really started believing about Steel Like an Artist, and I wrote this in the afterword, is that in some ways, the ideas in Steel Like an Artist are too popular. We're in this moment now where you go on the internet or you look at other companies or whatever it is. You know, you just go to the multiplex and it's like, okay, great. Here's a sequel to a sequel to a sequel or a remake of a remake of a remake. In some ways, the ideas in Steel Like an Artist are too popular now. I want to push people now to remember that T.S. Eliot told us that great poets don't just steal from each other contemporarily. They go back in time and dig up things that we might have forgotten, or they go to places that we're not familiar with, and they find things there. So I would like to push and continue to push people who are listening now, or my own audience, I'm trying to push people to go out beyond the contemporary, beyond whatever's on Pinterest today, beyond whatever's on Instagram that you're seeing, to dig more, to go back in time and find inspiration in the past and even the recent past, you know, it's incredible to me how things that are like 25 years old now are considered passe, you know, to most people. Well, like the neon vibe from the 90s and like right. the scrunchies are coming back and the headbands are back. and For the, better or worse. I know. Well, or even the 60s, you know, yeah. I'm a new follower of Olivia Rodrigo, mm-hmm. who you could say was like stealing like an artist from, <laughs> I don't know, another pop star. And she's wearing these like retro platform boots and like very sort of yeah. like go-go girlish, And I'm like, all right, this is just, <laughs> yeah. what is the quote? Like history just repeats itself, right? So it's kind of what you're saying is that, you know, there are these trends and there are these norms from history that can come back with a new twist, which I love. And I think that's actually really cool. I'm also a fan in the home decor world of Cottage core. I don't know if you're familiar with cottage core, but it's like using like gingham fabrics and things, but making them kind of chic and modern. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. this is this new trend happening right now, which I love too. But I think, you know, where a lot of people get stuck is like, where do you even start? And when you think about an idea, you know, I teach this course called Self Made, which is a 10 week course to help women learn how to start and grow a business. And the whole first part of it is just like coming up with their idea and people just freeze. And instead, I think like the creative mindset is how do you just generate a million ideas and then you can start curating down. But, you know, in Improv 101, I learned no idea is a bad idea. It's always about yes and, and you just keep like going and brainstorming. And so where do you start? If you're sitting either in front of a blank canvas or you're trying to come up with a new idea for a book, like what is your (laughs) routine you go through to just get started because that was your point, right? Just, yeah, you will figure out who you are and what this project is once you start. I am a big believer in the smallest possible experiment. So I had a creative director years ago tell me, what's most important is when you have an idea to try to prototype it immediately, just to try to make something out of it and make it exist in the world as soon as you can, just so you can then look at an object or a thing that you've made and then iterate off of that. So I try to take the spark of an idea and like immediately try to work it into something. Yeah, I love that. And it's basically 
design thinking in the tech world that I live in, it's the MVP, the minimum viable product, which you said like the single prototype or whatever. Right. But the key is you have to put it in front of somebody, right? You have to yeah. actually like ship it somewhere, show it to yeah. somebody. If you want feedback like that in order to make it like a real creative work or a new business or something, if you're just playing, obviously you can just do whatever you want. But one of the things that I do when I teach either business or creativity, literally like painting, I have this class that I do sometimes where I set a timer and I make people come up with an idea or just start painting something because they only have 60 seconds. <laughs> You're like, oh God, yeah. what's the first thing in my head? Okay, I'm gonna like I'm just gonna paint a tree. And I don't know why I painted a tree, but yeah. now I'm gonna paint some apples, you know. And it's just like the art of starting is so critical. And then you can figure out if you want to show it to people or if you want to do another version or whatever. But in speaking about showing it to people, that's obviously the most vulnerable thing that we can do. How would you recommend that anyone out there overcomes that kind of fear? I think it's like a muscle too. It's almost like in martial arts, they teach you how to take a punch. And it's like you can actually learn to take a punch. And I feel that way about putting your work out in the world. I mean, when you put your work out in the world, you sort of have to be ready for the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so I think the only way you really get used to it is by doing it a lot. Again, this will be a theme, I think, that comes up over and over in our conversation. But to put your work out in the world, probably even before you're ready for it, and really before you even know if it's any good, to show it to people, I think, is just such a crucial step because the thing I've noticed in my own creative life and something I struggle with a lot, you struggle with this even after you achieve like an audience or some kind of fame or whatever, is that you really don't know what your best work is. And I don't think a lot of writers or artists, I don't think that they're actually the best judges of their work. I think it's crucial to have people in your life that can really respond honestly to your efforts and kind of guide you in a sense because there's work that I do that I love that I could do all day that no one really cares about, you know? And then there's work that I despise that everybody wants, you know? So it's like, again, finding that Venn diagram between what people want and what you want to spend your time on. But, you know, like a really big example of this, of the importance of having trusted people, I think is someone like George Lucas, <laughs> he would be fun. The filmmaker. Yeah. He to me seems like a prime example of like how art really suffers when you become so special and so rich and so powerful that you really don't have to take notes from anyone. <laughs> yeah. So and it gets more important over time when you're a quote unquote nobody, which I don't like that term, but you know, whatever you want to say when you're first starting out. It's incredibly important to find these people early on so that they can kind of be with you as you go. I call them the eye rollers. <laughs> <laughs> Someone who will kind of roll their eyes at you when you need it. But also to be constructive. I mean, constructive criticism. People who care about you and they care about your work and they want to see it do well. Mm -hmm. Those people are very rare to find and they're very hard to find. And they'll be very hard to find once you achieve some sort of success, because once you kind of become successful, it's very hard to tell who's interested in you for your success and who's interested mm. in you for your work. That's a really good point. 
Yeah, you almost need your like board of advisors that you keep around you at all times. And I think it's actually yeah. probably best if you find them early and they stick with you, right? So that there's like the yeah. consistency of opinion along your journey. Yeah. But what about the fear of people stealing your ideas if you show it to them or if you show your work too early? It's yeah. funny. I think it's like the contradiction <laughs> to steal like an artist <laughs> where it's like maybe yeah. you're using something from before and adding your twist to it, but then are you going to get stolen from? Usually what you say to people is you wish you wish you had an idea good enough to steal I mean, it's very rare that someone starting out has some great idea and it gets like swept out from under them. I mean, this just doesn't really happen a lot. I think it's Cory Doctorow who says, you know, in the beginning, your enemy is not piracy, it's obscurity. You wish that enough people knew about you and had their eyes on you that they could steal from you. you know? Totally. That's a great piece of advice. Yeah. So I just think that's a beginner's worry and it's not usually founded in any kind of actual historical precedent, but it's a real concern, I guess, when you're starting out. I also think it comes from a place of scarcity. It's sort of a scarcity mindset, this idea that you only have one good idea, and if you lose that idea, you'll be done forever. <laughs> if you have a really good idea, everyone's probably going to tell you how crazy you are. <laughs> you know, if your idea is really good, it's probably going to be kind of a hurdle. If your idea isn't just a knockoff of everything else, it might take people a while to like warm up to you. Right. Well, and my answer is it's you wish, but it's all about the execution. Yeah. Look how many car companies are trying to build electric cars right now. And like, right. sadly, none of them are as good as Tesla. Like Elon Musk yeah. has like done such a good job <laughs> and like they will be. <laughs> It'll take them a while though, but there's going to be a quality factor and an execution factor to what you do that will help you stand out as well. Now, one thing I want to talk about is when to finish and when to change. And you've spoken about this before, but a lot of times artists and anyone, business people, whoever, anyone doing a project even, they don't really know when is it completed or like when is it not really working and when should you just totally shift gears? What is your response to that question? I wish I knew. You know, a lot of these questions, people ask them as if there's some set answer, as if it's not contextual every time. It's true. You know, like, how would anyone know when you're supposed to keep going or when you're supposed to stop? As if there's some, like, magic. Magic. Run it through this algebra equation. And if it's <laughs> this good, it's this. Or, but I do think on the whole, I mean... A lot of times, I think people know and they just don't want to admit it. I mean, like a lot of times with me, I don't want to listen to my inner voice. Like, I don't want to listen to the voice that's telling me what's actually going on. You know, as far as like when to change and when to finish, I mean, honestly, this is why deadlines are so great. You know, like with the book, if you have an indefinite amount of time with a book, it'll just keep changing and you'll keep changing it and it'll keep growing or getting cut or whatever. It's really your deadline. I mean, all my books have had to be what they are because they have a pub date, you know, and they're crystallizations of thought at a certain moment in time. So they just had to get done because there was some sort of external deadline to them. But as far as like quitting versus finishing, I like to quit a lot. I like to put things away and walk away. I believe deeply in the power of 
if you put something down for a little bit and it still nags at you and it wants you to come back, it'll tell you, mm-hmm. you know? So mm-hmm. there's stuff that I've thrown in the drawer, so to speak, that keeps coming back. And then there's stuff that I throw in the drawer that I never think about again, you know? And so I think there is something to, if you can walk away and be happy, <laughs> right. you know, that's a sign too. There's a poet, Paul Valery, who said long ago, he said, a poem is never finished, only abandoned. Mm. And I think abandonment in this case is published. Right. <laughs> Poems are sort of abandoned when they're left at your publisher's door. And I always think about the word execution, which I think is a very curious word to use for finishing a project because usually after things get executed, they're dead. Mm, that's interesting. And I feel that way a lot about my books. In fact, I mean, usually when I finish a book, that's usually when it's dead to me. I mean, it becomes an object, like a thing, that it's no longer a living, it doesn't really have a life yet until the reader blows breath into it, you know, opens Mm -hmm. it up and makes it work again. And so I think about that word execution a lot. Yeah, I've never (laughs) thought about execution as a negative death word, but you're right. It's a grim word, you know. Didn't I just say, like, (laughs) when you're copying something, it's as good as the execution of it? Mm So I might need to go back and rephrase that. You also say that, you know, if you're going to maybe change your mind you might have to go off-brand or offline. And I find this one really interesting. I run a venture fund called Offline Ventures. And the whole point of the name was that the best ideas are created offline, out in the wilderness, and somewhere foreign and new to you, like where your brain patterns are not the same as every day, which I know you call Groundhog's Day. (laughs) It's just like you're routinely doing the same thing every day. And so can you delve into how and where you go offline to create new ideas or to get a little bit of space from the Groundhog's Day? I have a couple of things. I mean, I haven't been able to travel for two years, so I sort of stick to my neighborhood. I take a daily walk for an hour, and I just kind of wander around and take notes if I have them, take pictures, look at birds and trees and stuff. (laughs) Just very basic stuff. And then I would say my notebook is a sort of walled garden that I hang out in. I mean, you know, a notebook. I like my paper notebook because it doesn't talk back at me. It doesn't do anything else. There's no Twitter. There's no Instagram. There's no email. And I just go to the page and see what I can fill it with. It's time that you can sort of disconnect from the world so you can connect with yourself. So for me personally, taking walks, writing a lot. And then I would say, actually, this might seem strange to people, but I would say that's what reading is for me. I think reading is a kind of communal experience with another mind. It's sort of like when you pay attention when you're reading, you're sort of turning off everything else and you're paying attention just to this one person's voice. And I think that is a place in which a lot of ideas come for me because I think we get very bad ideas about what reading is and what it's supposed to do when we're in school. 
I mean, a lot of people think reading is about retaining things like, oh, I read books so I can absorb the material and like put it in my memory banks or whatever. I actually think reading is much more about the actual experience of reading. And what happens when I read is it's less about the actual text itself, and it's more about what the text makes me think about. And so there are books that I would suggest aren't really even that great, I would say, as books, or you know, if I was evaluating them as like a book I would give to someone else, but they've been fantastically helpful to me just in coming up with ideas. And sometimes bad books actually are really valuable Mm. because you'll read a book that's kind of junk, but it's almost there. And you're like, well, this could be better. And it gives you that idea to come up with something new. And I think Mm -hmm. that's really good advice for every creative person in any field is to, my friend John Unger says that every piece of art he ever made was because he witnessed greatness and wanted to catch up or he saw something so bad that he knew he could do better and so bad art and good art can really be teachers it's really mediocre art that is Mm. hard to learn from Mm -hmm. it's really the middle the lumpy kind of beige middle (laughs) of work that is really hard to learn things from so i'm always kind of trying to plant that seed in people's minds is that Bad art, bad work, bad companies can teach you as much as good stuff can. I love that. I think it actually ties into a little bit this sort of contradiction of creativity when you're just adding and adding and adding because in one of your rules is creativity is subtraction (laughs) and you're limiting and reducing. And so can you explain a little bit about that and how we could all use that in our lives as well? Yeah, you know, I'm sort of a wannabe musician. I mean, music has been been the thing that's always been present in my life. It's the probably the art form I care the most about, even though I'm not a professional musician. But music's where I pull a lot of my examples from. So you take something like punk rock. Punk rock, in a lot of ways, is the subtraction of everything kind of gross about rock and roll in the 70s. So this idea that sometimes you cause revolutions in your art form by actually taking things away from what people normally expect or by chiseling away the excess of the form, I think that's super, super powerful. So, you know, I think you'll see a lot of companies right now, I think a lot of people are starting to get fatigue with devices that do so many things you know you get to this point where your phone can do everything and you're like i just want a tool that does one thing and does one thing really well you know and so Mm -hmm. i think you'll see people like now focusing just on one little thing then doing that or chiseling away. we're not going to do that there's a kind of negative self-definition that happens that's really really powerful for business you know a business is like we're not going to take venture capital money or we're not going to do five-day work weeks. We're going to subtract a day off the work week. Yeah. Whatever it is, you know, subtraction can be just as powerful as addition because we think of creation as an additive thing. And often it is a chopping away or a chiseling away or a cutting and a remixing of material. It's simplifying, right? I had a 
stint at Apple a while ago is the first job I had in my career. And I remember mm. it was in the Steve Jobs era and it was always about like, how do you cut more features? How do you cut <laughs> things down? Yeah. Even working in marketing, and I'm sure you can relate from someone that worked in advertising, it's like, how do you make the tagline shorter? more memorable, just like all the copies shorter. <laughs> like yeah. It needs to be simpler. It needs to be shorter. And I was really inspired by that because it takes a lot of focus yeah. to figure out what should that short thing be. What is the primary feature? What's the main thing we're going to talk about here? And that means a lot at the end of the day when you're communicating with consumers, right? About the three top features of the new whatever, or, you know, in a painting or an abstract piece of art. And it's really just the frame of reference you use for what in particular you're doing because a lot of people think, okay, I'm going to pay attention to this. You know, a lot of people's desires are like, I want to focus on this one thing. And they're very much about, I want to do this thing. And they don't think about all the things they won't be able to do by doing this thing. Like a lot of times doing one thing is about saying no to everything else that you could possibly do. That's one of the reasons that running a business or embarking on a creative career or making a piece of art even is very tricky and scary because you have to make a choice. Because every choice you make means that all the other options you've cut out and you said, no, I'm going to do this thing. I think that's where a lot of you know the fear comes because it's scary when you make a choice because when you say you're going to do something, you're also effectively saying, these are all the things I'm not going to do. Mm -hmm. I was reading this book by Martin Buber, and he says that every creative act has a risk and a sacrifice involved. And the risk is usually just that it could not work. You know, the thing cannot work. That's always a possibility. The sacrifice is that you're going to do this thing and nothing else. Mm. You know, you're going to put your effort in this time for the thing. So. Every endeavor has this, you know, sort of built into it. I love that. That's great. All right, Austin, we're going to wrap this with a lightning round. So I'm going to ask you a few questions and just blurt out what comes to mind. You ready? Cool. All right. What's your favorite work of art? <laughs> Boy, I think lightning round is harder than normal <laughs> stuff. My favorite work of visual art would be one of David Hockney's joiners the pieces he made by taking Polaroids or photo mat photos and making big collages out of them. Cool. Sounds interesting. What is your favorite creative exercise? Writing in a notebook. All right. What are you doing when you're not writing? Thinking about writing. <laughs> and what's your best tip for shaking off a creative rut? Move. <laughs> Physically? Yeah. Take a walk or go to a different room or go do something else. I love it. I love it. And, you know, we like to leave our listeners with a little project or assignment every week. So you get to be the teacher. What homework would you give our listeners to try this week? If you don't take a walk every day, take a 15-minute walk every morning. Why? See how you feel afterwards. Okay. Oh, I like that. I think that... When you walk in the morning, you've always had an adventure. And so the day never feels like a waste to me. And I usually come up with something worth doing later in the day when I'm on my walk in the morning. 
I would encourage everyone to take a walk in their neighborhood and see what you see before you look at your phone mm. for the day. Okay, so I'm going to complicate the exercise. You're adding on. Okay. Before <laughs> you look at your phone in the morning, take a walk and see how you feel. Oh, it's like a double challenge. I like this one. Okay, y'all, mm-hmm. you heard it here. Um, <laughs> if anyone does this, I want you to DM me and Austin <laughs> with how you felt afterwards. Speaking of which, Austin, where can our listeners find you if they want to follow you or stay in touch? I am Austin Cleon pretty much everywhere. And the easiest way to find me in lots of different places is to just go to Austin, like the city, Cleon, K-L-E-O-N.com. And that has been my home for 16 years now. And so (laughs) you can find everything to do with me there. Yes. And all of his books are there, newsletter, everything else you could want is there. Austin, you are such a beacon of light and inspiration. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your wisdom with us today. And for everyone else out there, if you enjoyed this show today, please leave us a virtual high five by rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Teach Me Something New, a production of iHeartRadio and Britain Co. I'm your host, Britt Morin. Find more information about each episode at Brit.co slash listen. You can also find me on social media. I'm at Brit or follow us at Brit and Co. Teach Me Something New is executive produced by Ali Ives and Ali Perry with additional production and sound design by Mark Lemmerjazy and Aaron Peterson. 